was almost chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show you and show you ready mind. Avoiding this that anyone avoiding this that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us, providing honorable things not only in the sight of the Lord but also in the sight of men, and we have sent with them our brother whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in him. So actually St. Paul said, I sent uh, Titus with two other brethren to you. Therefore, verse 24, show to them and before the church is the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. So St. Paul actually said this letter mainly to Titus and to other brethren. When St. Paul wrote this letter, few months after writing the first letter, if you remember, Corinth had many problems. And St. Paul addressed all these problems in the first letter. And actually, he rebuked them because of many, many issues. One of the issues was the adultery that happened in the church. The church at Corinth began in year 52 AD. And St. Paul actually visited them in his second missionary trip. And he stayed one year and a half with them. And maybe this was the first time to stay such a long time in the same city. And because he uh, rebuked them, he wanted to see the reaction from his letter, whether they repented or not. As a father, he wants to make sure that this rebuke was received positively and actually encouraged them to repent. Uh, the first visit, we can read about it in Acts chapter 18 from verse 1 to verse 18. But uh, after he left Korah, the first visit, he received a report by Titus, who informed St. Paul of how he received the first letter and their repentance and how uh, they benefited from his review, as we read in chapter 2, verse 12, and chapter 7, from verse 5 to 9. So the scenario is, St. Paul went there, spent a year and a half, and after he left, he heard some negative news about Paul's. So he wrote the letter, sent it there, and then sent Titus. And Titus brought a good report about how he received the letter and how he repented. So Sarkot actually sent the other letter to encourage them and to show them that he is grateful for their repentance. And he sent it also with Titus. So Titus' report was encouraging. But actually, another problem 
the start to appear in Torah. So the problem that we mentioned uh, in the first letter, now this problem was taken care of, but another problem happened, which is people start to cast doubts on uh, the apostleship of Saint Paul. They start to, to say that he is not a real apostle because he is not one of the twelve. And maybe, usually, Saint Paul used to say in, in the introduction, Paul, one servant of Jesus Christ. But in this chapter, Saint Paul did not describe himself as a one servant of Jesus Christ. But in verse 1 he said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So he's saying, my apostleship is true, and this is by the will of God, not by the will of men. And why it was very important for St. Paul to defend his apostleship? Otherwise, if his apostleship was not defended, this means all the churches that he established are not really churches. All the bishops and priests that he ordained, then their ordination will be uh, illegitimate. That's why St. Paul wants to defend his apostleship for the sake of the churches that he established and also uh, for the clergy that he ordained. This doubt on his apostleship was planted by the teachers who were from Jewish background. We call them Judaizing teachers from Jewish background. And why Kusan Paul attacked salvation by law only without the grace of God. That's why these people uh, attempted to undermine St. Paul's teaching about the law and how the person will not be saved by the law without the grace of God. Actually, they questioned his integrity. They said that St. Paul uh, take things like he makes promises, but he doesn't keep his promises. And we will talk about this in the, in the first chapter today. Because he changed his plans to visit Paul. So, his, they said about him, he is not a man of promise. He can say any words, but he changed. His yes can be no, and his no can be yes. Another thing, the attack is a style of writing and his speaking ability. See, usually he speaks in ambiguous way to confuse the people and you cannot hold him accountable. Usually people, when they speak ambiguously, you cannot hold them account because they say words that have so many different meanings. So if you if you want to confront him and you tell him you said so, they're like, no, I didn't mean this. Because the word has so many different meanings. Also, they attack his unwillingness to accept support from the church at Corinth, as we can see from chapter 11, verse 7 to 9, 
So they attacked him, they attacked his apostleship, they attacked his promises, that he doesn't keep his promises, his speaking ability, and his style of, of writing, and also his unwillingness to accept support from the church at court. Another reason, so why St. Paul wrote this letter, number one, to tell them how happy he was when he received the good news from Titus about the repentance. Number two, to defend his apostleship. Number three, some people still in Korah did not repent from their uh, ungodly behavior. Especially, especially uh, sexual immorality and licentiousness. So St. Paul actually, he uh, rebuked them and he let them try to lead them to repentance as we read in chapter 12, verse 20 and 21. St. Paul hoped that by writing in advance of his visit, he can get all the necessary rebuke out of the way. Meaning what? Meaning St. Paul want his visit to be uh, a, a blessed and a, a pleasurable visit. He didn't want to go and rebuke them. He wants to spend good time with them. That's another reason why he wrote this letter. So he won't actually, if there is any rebuke, to send it in writing, so everything will be fixed before his visit. So, when he visits them, the time will be enjoyable. The time will be pleasurable. That's another reason why he sent this letter before his visit to them. He also encouraged them to have collection for the needy, saints in Jerusalem. Ready when he comes, so he can take the collection and send it to Jerusalem. So, the reasons why he wrote the letter to encourage them and show his gratitude to God and thanksgiving to God for their repentance. Number two, to defend his apostleship. Number three, to defend the ungodly sorry, to rebuke the ungodly behavior that still existed in court. Number four, in order to not to rebuke them when he goes uh, during his visit, so the visit will be enjoyable. So he won't actually to finish all the rebuke before his visit. And number five, to encourage them to collect money for the needy in Jerusalem. Most of the letters of St. Paul have uh, some doctrinal teaching. But this letter is the least Doctrinal of St. Paul's letter. And if you compare it with Romans or Hebrew or other letters, there is no much doctrine. But it's about himself and about his ministry, biographical letter. So it tells more about St. Paul as a person and as a servant, as a minister. And actually, this letter is very good to be started in service meeting because it explains what service should be. 
So it is a very good letter to study at the service meeting for the sermons in order to learn from St. Paul how service should be. We can actually divide this letter into five main sections. The first section is salutation and thanksgiving. Second section, St. Paul explains his ministry of reconciliation. St. Paul considered himself as ambassador of Christ, reconciling the people with God. And how he did this, he defended his integrity. Because if there is ambassador in a country and people start to cast a doubt on him and say the country did not send this ambassador, so actually he cannot represent the country unless if he proves to the people that he is a real ambassador and the country really sent him. That's why he started by defending his integrity and explaining his apostolic ministry and making appeal to them to be reconciled with God. The third section is about the collections for the sins in Jerusalem, for the need in Jerusalem. Number uh, the fourth section, St. Paul goes back to defend his authority, his apostolic authority. And the last section is concluding exhortation and benediction. So this is actually, uh, we can, as I said, divide or classify this uh, letter into five sections. So let's start by uh, chapter one. In, in this chapter, St. Paul is joined by Timothy as he begins this epistle with greeting to the church in Corinth. So, verse 1 and 2, and now I'm speaking about chapter 1. Verse 1 and 2 in chapter 1 is greeting from St. Paul and Timothy to all the churches in Achaia and in Corinth. Then he praised the Lord for the comfort that God gave him in the midst of tribulation. As we will see, St. Paul was exposed to a very difficult tribulation in Ephesus. Then he left Ephesus and went to Macedonia. And in Macedonia, he wrote this letter. So he shared the news about the, the great tribulation that he was exposed to in Ephesus and how God delivered them from this tribulation. Then, from verse 3 to 7, he expressed to them his confidence that both suffering and comfort he receives because of Christ can work to the benefit of the brethren at Corinth. So he's saying, my suffering and my a comfort will work for your benefit. Because St. Paul believes that all things work together for good to those who love God. So he's saying, I'm confident that 
the suffering that I endured and the comfort and that I received, Christ will, will, will use this suffering and this uh, comfort for your own benefit and joy. He then informed them in details how God delivered them from the tribulation in Asia. And I will explain Ephesus, they worshipped uh, Artemis, goddess Artemis. And there was a goldsmith man, his name Demetrius, who was making a lot of money from uh, making idols in silver and gold for the Ephesians. So if St. Paul started to preach and convert people from paganism to worship God, now all this uh, industry will, will go out of business. That's why uh, Demetrius started a program against and actually they wanted to kill him literally. That's why the disciples there prevented them Paul from going to face these people and they sent him secretly to Macedonia. So he was about he was about to be killed. You can read about this before in the book of Acts, chapter 19. But God actually delivered him. So he's explaining to them about uh, this tribulation and how God actually delivered him. Telling them also that their prayers were instrumental in his deliverance. Through their prayers, because he supported the support whose prayer, so God delivered uh, and because of this deliverance, many people will give thanks to God. Because God accepted their prayers and listened to their prayers. As if you are praying for somebody who is in hardship, and when God delivers him from hardship, you will give thanks to God. And after this, St. Paul starts to defend his integrity. Because as I told you, the accused here is not man of his word because he changed his plan, his plans to visit them, so he defended his integrity, and he began with a profession of sincerity and simplicity, how in his behavior and also in his writing he was sincere and simple. He did not use ambiguous language to confuse them, and he reminded them that they will have good reason to boast in each other when Christ comes. St. Paul will boast in them and also they will boast in St. Paul. So he as a pastor will boast in his people, in his flock, and the flock also will boast in their pastor. Because as I told you, his sincerity and his integrity had come in question because St. Paul changed his plan concerning his visit to them. And 
Sir Bullock explained to them the reason behind changing the plan is to spare them. He didn't want to rebuke them in person. So actually, he delayed his visit so they can fix things. So when he go and visit them, as I said, it will be enjoyable visit and pleasurable visit. So now after we give a quick introduction to the whole letter and we give introduction to chapter 1, let's read verse by verse from chapter 1 and understand. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. As I told you, St. Paul used to describe himself as bond servant. But in this letter he did not use the word bond servant, he said an apostle. Why? Because one of the reasons he wrote this letter is to defend his apostleship. And it's just by the word of God. So, it is God who called him. It is God who made him an apostle. St. Paul did not make himself apostle by himself. Or by the will of men. But this is by the will of God. As if he is telling them, if you don't accept my apostleship, as if you are not accepting the will of God. And Timothy. Timothy had been sent to Corinth along with the first letter and now returned. So Timothy carried the first letter to them and returned. That's why St. Timothy is also, he joined St. Paul in greeting them. Because he spent time with them, delivered a letter for them, so he joined St. Paul in greeting them and in writing this letter. This letter was sent to the Church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. All Achaia means the whole of Greece. Corinth is part of Greece. So he is sending his letter to all the churches in Greece. Most probably there are some churches existed in Greece, like there is a church in Canterbury. Uh, and, and Phoebe was uh, the deacons of this church. So, uh, not only the church in Corinth, but there were other churches. That's why St. Paul sent this letter mainly to the church at Corinth, but all other churches in Greece also were included in this letter. Verse 2 Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Almost in all his letters, St. Paul starts the letter by saying grace and peace. And if you think about grace and peace, these are the most needed gifts. Anybody in his life needs these two gifts, grace and peace. Grace because without the grace of God we cannot achieve anything. 
We cannot achieve anything earthly or heavenly. That's why we need the grace of God. And number two, during the world, we will be exposed to many hardships and tribulations. And we need actually to hold our peace and to experience this peace in the midst of all this hardship and tribulation. That's why when we pray, let's pray for grace and peace. When we pray for our families, our friends, our children, let's pray also for grace and peace. Support in all these letters says grace to you and peace. But many times the world can offer help, the world can offer peace. But as the Lord told us, not as the world gives, so I do. That's why when we spoke about grace and peace, he said, I'm not speaking about grace and peace of the world, but grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The law was given by Moses, but the grace by Jesus Christ. So speaking here about the, the peace and grace that were given to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. St. Paul started by praising God and blessing Him. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, as an apostle, it's very suitable to start his letter by blessing God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We bless the Lord and we praise Him for so many reasons. But St. Paul is focusing here on one reason. As he described God, he is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Can you imagine if God takes away his mercies from the world for twinkling of an eye, fraction of a second? What will happen in this world? It will be a disaster. The world, it, it will be the end of the world. If God actually takes away His mercies for a fraction of a second, all of us will be destroyed. We live by the mercy of God. And one time I read a very nice, uh, a very powerful description about hell. It was mentioned that hell is the place where the mercies of God do not exist. Hell is the place where the mercies of God do not exist. As you say, there is no mercy to those who are not merciful. That's that. So actually, if there is no mercy, as if the people are enduring the sufferings of the head. And because of the mercies of God, 
without contract. Can you imagine if God told us, I will not forgive your sin? That no mercy here, how miserable we will be. But when we sin as one and ask the mercy of God, and God accept our repentance and give us His mercy, we feel comfort. That's why the divine liturgy will say, according to your mercies, O Lord, and not according to our sins. If you judge us according to our sins, all of us will be the most miserable. That's why we are asking you to judge us, not according to our sins, but according to your mercies, O Lord. So mercies are the fountain of comfort. Comfort is the outward expression of mercy. Because God has have mercy on us, then we are comfortable. That's why He described God as the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Verse 4. Who comforts us in all our tribulation. And the word all is very important. In all our tribulation, not in most of them, in all. So, if you are going through this of pardon, God will comfort you. If we don't feel comforted, maybe because we are closing our door before God. That's why God is standing at the door knocking, asking us to open the doors of our heart. Why? To comfort us. To comfort us in all our tribulations. Many times God does not take us out of the tribulation, but He comforts us in the tribulation. In the mind of many people, the only way that God comforts us is to remove that tribulation. But no. God may not take away the tribulation, but He will comfort me in the tribulation. God gives comfort in tribulation and also after the tribulation. So even during the time of affliction and hardship, God is comforting us. Who comfort us in all our tribulation. Then we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble. Those who experience the comfort of God during hardship are the most suitable people to comfort others during their hardships. So, those who experience God's comfort during their tribulation, they will be the best to comfort others. How they will comfort them? St. Paul says, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So, in tribulation, God comforts us. Until we are comforted, not only we are comforted, but we have abundance of this comfort, that we are able to go and comfort others who suffer, not 
by our own comfort, but by, by the comfort with which we are comforted by God. And let me tell you uh, a personal experience. Believe me, in many, many times, when I hear some bad news, as if the loss of uh, loved one, or a very serious disease, on my way to visit the family, most of the time I'm thinking what I'm going to say. Because there is no word that I can say to comfort these people. So I pray and ask God to be with me during this difficult time. Because what are you going to say to a family lost, for example, their son or you know, their parent? Well, what are you going to say? And in most of, of cases, if not all of the cases, do you know what happens? When I go there, they comfort me. Instead of me comforting them, actually their words comfort me. And at the end, I realize what St. Paul said here. That during the time of hardship, God comforts the people with this comfort that not only comfort them and give them consolation, but also they are able to comfort others with this comfort that they receive from God. Yes, St. Paul labeled God so closely that he is Father of mercy and God of all comfort. Yes, indeed God, our God is Father of mercy and God of all comfort. Verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abounded in us, so our consolation also abounds in Christ. St. Paul is saying here, as God allows us to suffer with Him, and as the sufferings of Christ abounds in us, in the same way, the comfort, the consolation of God will be adopted. And I want you here to notice what St. Paul said, the suffering of Christ abound in us. Who suffers here? It is us during hardship, it is us who suffer. But St. Paul didn't say our suffering, but he said the suffering of Christ. Because actually our suffering is his own suffering. Do you remember when the Lord appeared to St. Paul on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9? What did he tell him? So, so, why do you persecute me? He didn't tell him, why do you persecute my children and a Christian? He told him, why do you persecute me? As if the suffering that my children are enduring, it is my own suffering. That's why the comforts of Christ will be our own comfort. If our suffering are His, then His comfort is ours. So Christ suffers with us 
when we suffer for his sake. And St. Paul understands from what the Lord told him, what is persecuted me. St. Paul understands that if he endured affliction for Christ, like what happened to him at Ephesus, then actually, as if Christ, he is the one who endured the suffering, not St. Paul. And that's why Christ will comfort those who endure suffering for him. As Christ actually promised us in John chapter 16. If you go to chapter John chapter 16, verse 2 to 4, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers that service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you will remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I will. Then the Lord told them, but you know, I will see you again and you will be joyful and nobody will take your joy away from you. So as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. If our suffering are His suffering, then His consolation will be our consolation. And as the suffering abounds, so also the consolation abounds. Verse 6. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation, for your benefit and salvation. Which is effective for enduring the same suffering which was suffered. So St. Paul is saying, St. Paul is saying, when we suffer, it is for your benefit. God will use our suffering for your benefit. Hell. It will be an example to you. When you hear how we endure and how God comforted us, so when you go through hardship, actually you will endure and you will be comforted. Because our suffering is an example for you. That's why he said, if you are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. You will see the work of God in our life. And because you will see how God delivered us, you will be comforted and you will be saved. That's why he said, which is effective for enduring, for you enduring the same suffering which you also suffer. So when you are exposed to the same suffering, you will endure. Why you will endure? Because now you have confidence that God as he delivered us, he will deliver you. So you will accept the suffering and you will endure the suffering. For if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. The same way, when we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. You will not believe that there is God who takes care of his children, who defends them, who comforts them in their suffering and in their tribulation. That's 
why it said in verse 7, and our hope for you is, is steadfast. Because we know that you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will be part, you will partake of the consolation. Saint Paul said that his hope in their comfort, that God will comfort them in their hardship. This hope is steadfast. He's so sure that if they go through difficult time, God will comfort them. Why is so sure? Because this rule will never be broken. Which rule? If you participate in the suffering of Christ, also you will participate in the consolation of Christ. That's why he said, our hope for you, our hope for what? That you will be delivered in the time of suffering. This hope is steadfast. Nothing will change. Because we know, we know for sure, that is the rule. That as you are partakers of the suffering of Christ, so also you will partake of the consolation. God is God of mercy and Father of compassion. So, when you endure the suffering, God will comfort you. Verse 8. Now St. Paul will give them example. He will share experience happened to him, uh, how God delivered him. What? He will share the experience of his suffering and the experience of his deliverance in order to encourage them and support their faith. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, for our travel which came to us in Asia. As I told you, this travel in Asia you can read in detail in Acts chapter 19 from verse 29 and uh, 30 to 38. It's about Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen when actually they suppose start to preach Christ and people start to convert to Christianity. And as I told you, they were selfless men. That's why they were concerned about their industry. They will go out of business if people don't worship idols anymore. And, and, and they wanted to kill St. Paul. Uh, when he said, our travel which came to us in Asia, he's not speaking about Asia as a continent, but he's speaking about the Roman province of Asia, which is the western part of Asia Minor. And the capital of this part was Athens. Athens was the capital. And if you read in Acts chapter 20, verse 1, you will see how St. Paul departed suddenly and secretly from Athens because they wanted to kill him. So his sudden departure from Athens immediately after the riot shows that he was in real danger. Uh, and St. Paul explained his danger to us here by saying that we were burdened beyond the measure about his strength, so that we despaired even of life. These are very serious words coming from the mouth of St. Paul. 
what is the good sense? Beyond duration, above strength, so that he despaired even of life. So, as if he felt in despair, these are very serious words. It's real danger which St. Paul exposed to. And St. Paul felt that this is the time of his death. This is the time of his departure from the world. As he said in verse 5, yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves. He felt that the time had come for him, for him to die. That's why St. Paul said, now as if a sentence of death, an order from the king to be, for me to be killed, as if I am waiting, that's my execution. If a person reaches this level, then actually he is hopeless and helpless. He cannot, the dead man is hopeless and helpless. He cannot return back to life, and even he cannot cry for him. So, when a person reaches a level of hopelessness and helplessness, is there a lesson here? Yes. The lesson, don't depend on yourself, simply because you are hopeless and helpless. But is there a hope for the hopeless? Yes. God is the hope for the hopeless. So he makes which and instead of trusting yourself, you need to trust who? Trust God. Because God is the hope for the hopeless. And He is the help for the helpless. God can raise the dead. So even if they kill me, God can raise me from the dead. That's why St. Paul said that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And I like here how St. Paul, even in the time of despair, he was able not to lose hope. Even in the time of hopelessness and the time of helplessness, he was able not to lose hope because he switched the focus to God. God who raises the dead. That's why St. Paul, he was saying, my deliverance here from this trouble as if resurrection from death. If God delivered me this time from this tribulation as if he raised me from death. Is God able to do this? Yes. Verse 10. Who delivered us from so great a death. So St. Paul was so sure that his death is, is uh, true. They will come no matter what. But God was able to deliver him from so great a death. And he was delivered in his past death. And thus deliver us in the present tense. In whom we trust that he will still deliver us. I think this verse is one of the most powerful verses in hope. 
He delivered us. He does deliver us in whom we trust that He will still deliver us. Past, present, future. God continually delivering us. So, we should not lose hope because God all the time is delivering us from all tribulations. And Satan also is teaching us another lesson. What will help us to be delivered? If our trust in God, then we should cry for God. Cry for Him. Ask God. That's what we call prayer. That's why we need to pray for one another. Especially, all the time, but especially during the time of affliction. When Peter was in prison, we read in the book of Acts, all the church were praying for him. That's why in verse 11, you also helping together in prayer for us. So, St. Paul recognized that if he received from the prayers of the Corinthian church, there is on his behalf. When he was in Ephesus, people were praying for him, and God delivered him through their prayers. That's the position. You also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf. When the people realized that God delivered St. Paul, he accepted their prayer on the behalf of St. Paul, and he delivered him, then actually prayer will lead to what? To thanksgiving. And I remember one time I told you, prayer leads to joy, and joy leads to thanksgiving, and thanksgiving leads to prayer. So we end up praying without ceasing, joyful always, and giving thanks in all things. That's what St. Paul is saying here. When you pray, and God listened to your prayer, and delivered me from so great a death, then you became joyful. And because you were joyful, thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift, the gift of deliverance granted to us through many, through the prayer of many people. The prayer of many persons secured the gift of his deliverance. Hence, many could give thanks on behalf of the Saint. Verse 12. Saint Paul from verse 12 starts to defend his integrity. For our boasting in this, he said, now, my boasting in what I will tell you right now. The testimony of our conscience. So his conscience did not blame him. That we conduct ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. Not with special wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you. As I told you, some people start to cast doubt on Sir Paul's integrity. He is not that of integrity. And they said, Sir Paul changed his plan to visit you. Because 
He doesn't keep his word. He doesn't keep his promises. And St. Paul used ambiguous words. So you cannot go to him. You know when you speak without clarity? Nobody can hold you accountable. So they were using the same suppose uh, suppose use this uh, fleshly wisdom, carnal wisdom, earthly wisdom, so that you cannot hold him. So suppose said no. Actually, if that's what you think of me, but let me tell you what my conscience, my conscience which is guarded and guided by the Holy Spirit, testify about us. Here is the testimony of our conscience, and I boast in the testimony of my conscience. I boast in the testimony of my conscience. What is the testimony of my conscience? That we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. I was sincere with you. When I told you I'm coming to visit you, I was sincere. And my words were simple words, were plain words. I didn't use fleshly wisdom. I didn't use ambiguous words or unclear messages. No. But by the grace of God, we're speaking to you. And more abundantly toward you. So he boasts that he had acted with purity of purpose, integrity, and under the guidance of God. So if I changed my plan, this was the guidance of God to me. I didn't make this by my own self. But God guided me, as he will explain later on why he changed his plan. So he appeals to his singleness of purpose. He has one purpose, that is salvation. Because the charge was that he changed his plan and he, he was ambiguous in what he wrote. That's why in verse 13 he's told them, For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. He told them, What you read and what you understood is what we wrote to you. We used to plain words. Words that doesn't have double meaning. Sometimes you, 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 sometimes we use words that has two meanings. And everybody take the meaning that he wants. But suppose it no. I don't do this. Our words, we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust that you will understand even to the end. So he insists that he writes clearly and that he will understand and accept what he writes. So he, he is appealing to them to understand what he writes to them to the end. Don't try to dig deep behind his words. What I write to you is what I meant. There is no hidden messages. I don't send you a hidden message. I, I, I trust that you will understand this even to the end. And you are dealing with me, please, to the end, try to understand that 
I'll write to you plainly and clearly. Verse 14. As also you have understood us in part. Means some of you understood us that we are simple, we are sincere, we are men of integrity. Not all of you, but some of you. Actually, the majority of you acknowledge us as men of integrity, as apostles, and rejoice in our service and in our labors. That we are your both, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, you boast in us, and we boast in you when Christ comes. And this is the wonderful relationship between the pastor or the priest and his congregation. In the day of our coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the clergy and the servants should boast in their people. Because as St. Paul said, you are our crown, our jewel. So, you know, when a person makes invention and he goes in, in, in the invention, the design that he made, now, many architects, when they design a beautiful church or beautiful building, they boast in this uh, building. In the same way, you are our service, our work. So in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we hope and, and, and we should boast in Him. In the same way you boast in us, you will be proud that St. Paul is our teacher, our apostle, our family. So the boasting here in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ is mutual. The pastor boasts in his people and the people boast in the shepherds. Verse 15. And in this confidence, which confidence? That they acknowledge his apostleship and they rejoice in his labor. In this confidence I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit, because this was the second visit. So, because the second visit, so you, you benefit from my first visit, and now you have a second uh, benefit. So, because of this confidence that you boast in us, and I boast in you, because of this confidence that you acknowledge me as an apostle, and you acknowledge me as sent by the Lord Jesus Christ, and you rejoice in my labor. In this confidence, I intended to come to you. And this intention was real. My plan, when I told you that I am coming to visit you, was a truthful plan. And now he will explain his plan, his intention. In verse 16. To pass by you, sorry, to pass by way of you to Macedonia. He went directly to Macedonia, but he wanted to stop at Corinth first, then to go to Macedonia, and to come again from Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on my way to Judea. So his plan is to stop by them on his way to Macedonia, and then from Macedonia to Judea, to stop that by court. So, uh, before going to Macedonia, uh, he, he was stopped there, sailing straight across 
from access to court uh, and then uh, on his way back uh, he will stop uh, at court. Therefore, verse 17, when I was commanding this, did I do it lightly? St. Paul started to uh, defend himself here. So he said, did I plan lightly? Wasn't I serious enough in my planning? I think I was serious enough in my planning. I didn't take it quite as you, you, you described me as indecisive. Or the things I planned, do I plan according to the flesh? Means what? I'm using here the earthly wisdom. I tell you that I'm coming to visit you, but I'm not coming. So do I plan according to the flesh? That which means there should be yes, yes, and no, no. Which means my yes could be no, and my no could be yes. That is the flesh, fleshly wisdom. Apparently, the people in Corinth heard about his plan. Uh, we understand from First Kings chapter five that there was a letter sent from Saint Paul to Corinth. But this letter uh, we don't have. Maybe he told them about his plan in this letter. Then actually uh, he declared to them that he changed his plan. So people start to accuse him of his indecisiveness and he takes things lightly. He is not taking people seriously enough. And uh, his yes could be no and his no could be yes. Uh, when he said the carnal wisdom or a fleshly wisdom, he meant that he is ready to turn a yes into no. So there is no fixed purpose to do as a promise. He is not man of his word. Verse 18. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. He said no. We are not men that give you confusing messages. As God is faithful with us, also our message to you is yes or no. When we say yes, we intend yes. When we say no, we intend no. But it is never yes and no at the same time. That's why he said, was not yes and no. Yes and no at the same time. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no, which means our word was not ambiguous or unreliable. So the idea here that there was no indecisiveness on his part, there was no uncertainty on his part. Because how St. Paul would be trusted by God to preach the word of the gospel if he used carnal wisdom? If his yes is no and his no is yes, then how God entrusts St. Paul to preach the gospel? That's why in verse 19 he said, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, 
by me as including all Sirikari's patriotism was not yes and no, but in him was yes. When we preach Christ and we talk to of Christ as God, this was not yes and no. So yeah, disaster, if this means yes and no, so it means Christ is God and Christ is not God. So as if St. Paul is telling them, if my yes could be no, then my preaching also could be no. So to preach Christ that he is God, maybe he is not God. But this is not the case. Because he is yes, Christ is God. And I have two witnesses with me, Silvanus and Timothy. But in him was yes, which means all the promises that we taught you, all the teaching, all the preaching are true. For all the promises of God in him are yes. And in Him, Amen, to the glory of God through us. So if we talk to you, God will deliver you. This is yes and Amen. It will never be no. All the promises, all the, the, the preaching, yes and Amen. Otherwise, how God will be glorified. If I tell you, God will deliver you, but He doesn't. But God will be glorified for the glory of God through us, through our uh, ministry. So, all the promises of God are sure and positive. It is, uh, so, if God entrusted us to preach the message of the gospel, which is the truth with capital T, then we are both of integrity. We will not use yes and no language to confuse you or to send hidden messages. Verse 21, Now he who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. So he is saying, It is God who gives us our stability, who gives us our integrity, who made us integral? Who made us men of promise? It is God. So, He who established us with you in Christ, who established us with you in Christ, confirmed us with you in Christ, and anointed us by the Holy Spirit, is God. So as God established us, made us steadfast in Christ, Confirmed in Him. And as Christ, as God established you also, so our world is established too. It is God who gives us stability. So our world is yes, sure, and steadfast. So St. Paul compared here between faith and his work. The establishing him is speaking about being established in faith. When you accepted Christ, who made you stable in your faith? Not shaken even by persecution. It is God. And God did not establish us only, but established you too. And now he established us through the anointment of the Holy Spirit. 
through the grace of God. That's why in verse 22, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our heart as guarantee. Sealing, when you seal something, means it belongs to you. You own this. So let's seal us by the Holy Spirit. So we are his that established. Then the promise of the inheritance of the kingdom of God is sure and steadfast. We are sealed. And not only we are sealed, but God gave us, you know, how you put earnest money. So that actually gave us the guarantee. What's the guarantee? His spirit. When he gave us the spirit, the Holy Spirit to dwell in us through the anointment of the Holy Oil. So the idea here, how do you doubt our words? If you doubt our word, then actually you are doubting our faith. And if you are doubting our faith and our preaching, actually you are doubting the Holy Spirit. Because God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who established us. So how we doubt our words, and you say that my yes is not and my no is yes. They cannot doubt his faith and his fearless severance and penalty without doing injury to the Spirit of God. So, as God established us in faith, as God sealed us and gave us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, and gave us this promise that we are his children, we are his own people, and give us the inheritance of kingdom of God. And this seeming is guaranteed by the gift of the Holy Spirit in our heart. So, the words of St. Paul were yes. He was not using unclear or ambiguous messages. Verse 23, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul, that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Now he explained to them why he changed his plan. And this they think that he is making an excuse. He said, I call God witness against me. God knows the truth why I changed my plan. Not because I was not man of word or man of promise. Not because uh, I am indecisive. Or I took you lightly, not because of all of this, but to spare you. What means to spare you? You want to give them time to, after reading the first letter, to repent. So when he goes to them or visit them, he will not rebuke them, and it will be a joyful uh, visit. That's why he told them, uh, to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. To give you time to repent and to fix the things that go wrong in the church. But here to spare you implies what? That he may discipline them if they continue to do wrong. But people may perceive this as a Paul having dominion or making himself a lord over them. That's why in the last verse he said, not that we have communion over your faith. If I discipline you, not because I have communion over your faith, uh, 
exercising a lordship on him. St. Paul said, I understand who am I, who I am to you. I am a fellow worker, I am your servant. As he said, but I am fellow workers for your joy. What does it mean for your joy? If I discipline you, in order to lead you to repentance, then with repentance comes the joy of salvation. So, when I discipline you, it's not because of dominion or because of lordship. I understand my ministry. I'm a fellow worker, I'm a helper, I'm a servant. For your joy. Therefore, when I bestow such pain, when I bestow you such discipline, I am helping your faith. I am advancing your faith. I am promoting your faith, which is the source of all joy, as we read in Romans chapter 15, verse 31. Why? For my faith you stand. Why I want to help your faith? Why I want to advance your faith? Why I want to promote your faith? Because by faith you stand. By faith you will have joy. That's why I'm helping you with your faith. I want nothing from you. I don't want to lord, uh, lord it over you or have dominion over you. But I want to help you to be joyful. So my changes, my, uh, when I change my plan, my intention is to spare you. Spare you this discipline. Uh, to give you time to repent and fix, fix things so when I come to you and visit you, it will be a joyful visit and pleasurable visit. We will be together for you.